0: You're listening to audio from Central Baptist Church in Mansfield, Texas. If you would like to get more involved or get more information about our church, stick around after the message. If you have your Bibles, join me in Isaiah chapter number 53. Back in the late 1800s, D.L. Moody, the evangelist, had a home in Northfield, Massachusetts. He used to hold Bible conferences back there. Leaders from all across the country, from all across Europe and other parts of our world would get on boats or trains and come to that portion of America to attend one of those conferences. So one time, the place was absolutely packed. The grounds were filled with European visitors, guests from around the United States, who were here to, uh, there to hear one of the world's most prominent evangelists at the time, Dr. D.L. Moody. Well, there is a European custom, and that was during the night. The gentleman takes their shoes off, and they put them in the hallway. And during the night, a hall servant comes by, collects the shoes, cleans them, polishes them, and puts them back in front of the door in Europe. But this night in America, there were no hall servants. Um, In the United States of America, you clean your own stinking shoes, right? (laughs) Amen. Amen. Well, Dr. D.L. Moody noticed that all the shoes were out in front of the door. So he collected them all. He told some of his ministry students about it. They didn't have any time to do that. They had all sorts of excuses, and so D.L. Moody took those shoes to his own room and personally, one by one, pair by pair, cleaned and polished every pair of shoes. He put them back in front of the door, so when they opened their doors in the morning, they didn't think anything of it. It was protocol in Europe. They saw cleaned, polished shoes. They put them on, And they went to the meeting where D.L. Moody was speaking. That's why they came. They had no idea that the one who became the hall servant was the evangelist that they came to listen to. There was one man, though, one friend of D.L. Moody, who saw what was happening out of his window. He told a few people what had happened that night. But by the end of the week, everyone knew. And so people were fighting over polishing each other's shoes. Moody's esteemed position as conference leader... And as evangelists, made his service all the more dramatic and lovely. Think of Jesus now. Paul the Apostle said that he was God in human flesh in Philippians chapter 2. But in that chapter, he details that this Jesus, God, put on human flesh. Made himself of no reputation. And what did he do? He took on the form of a servant. Boy, did Jesus serve. He healed multitudes of people. Imagine um, Black Friday, right? Great sales. People line stores after stores. Some of you will get up at 3 o'clock in the morning just to save $5 on a toaster. But now imagine if there was somebody that said, I could heal what's ever wrong with you. Imagine how long these lines would be. I don't know about you, but if you've gone Black Friday shopping, when there are lines and lots of people, usually there's not a lot of joy. Right? Consider how rude the people could have been. Now, we look at Jesus as our Savior, but most of them looked at him as a carpenter turned rabbi. That was it. Think about how great, ungrateful they would be. I mean, we have one instance in Scripture Jesus healed 10 lepers. How many of those 10 lepers came back to say thank you? One. I mean, if that percentage plays out, Jesus was only getting thanked 10% of the time. And I think we would agree that sounds an awful lot like human nature even today. But Jesus healed them all the same. He took the time out of his day to love on and to heal those who were hurting Think about our Savior. He wasn't too important. He wasn't um, uh, full of pride that he thought that children were beneath him. He served and played with children. He even condemned his disciples and said, No, don't stop them from coming to me. Such is the kingdom of God. He fed people before he ever ate. Listen to me. We have fellowships from time to time. And many times we'll have lines that go down that hallway waiting for fried chicken and ham. Um, and sometimes it takes a rather long time for the person at the back to get to their food. But could you imagine having a fellowship dinner with five to 15,000 people there? And Jesus was the one that was fixing it all because there wasn't enough if he did it. And so he just, for hours, passed out food. The one that made the food. The, the, the God of the universe stood there for hours as he passed out food. And some of you complain when we're out of toilet paper. Instead of asking, hey, where's the toilet paper? He preached to them time and time again. We have a wonderful example right before his death where he got on his hands and knees and washed the disciples' feet. But his greatest act of service isn't seen in any of those things. His greatest act of service is seen giving his very life for sinners like you and me. He esteemed the position as the sinless servant of God, as God himself makes what he uh, was about to do, All the more dramatic. The fact that we're talking about God in human flesh makes what we're about to talk about today more dramatic and lovely. Jesus served all of the redeemed by dying for us. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 53. We're going to read the whole chapter. It begins with a question. Who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground, but he hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Look at verse 10, says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall... Prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this passage. What a beautiful prophecy of the coming Messiah and the work that he would do, the service that he would provide for those of us in this room today. I pray, Lord, that we will be grateful for his service. Help us to live in light of the fact that our Savior bled and died for us. In your name I pray. Amen. Isaiah, with great precision, almost as a man who saw the events of the cross unfold before him, wrote what would happen to Jesus when he came to earth to save mankind. This chapter penned some 680 years before Jesus. Theologians call it the Mount Everest Of messianic prophecy. Charles Spurgeon said it is the Bible in miniature and the gospel in essence. This chapter is the sum and substance of our gospel message. The book of Isaiah is quoted in the New Testament some 85 different times. It is quoted by Jesus himself. But do you know that Isaiah chapter 53 is the most quoted chapter in all of the New Testament? It is referred to by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, 1 Peter, and 1 John. Don't you think that the New Testament authors knew Isaiah 53 to be about the Messiah? Absolutely they did. It is so important that Philip in Acts chapter 8 would lead the Ethiopian eunuch to Jesus Christ. Using only Isaiah chapter 53. This chapter is one of four servant songs that Isaiah wrote. They speak of a servant. They all look towards the Messiah. And each of the servant songs portrays the servant, the Messiah, in a different way. This is the fourth, the last of the servant songs. And it is by far the most important, the most memorable. So the first one is Isaiah 42, the second Isaiah 49, and the third Isaiah chapter 50. The fourth of the servant songs is here in Isaiah 53, and it predicts in beautiful language I plan on not singing this morning. <laughs> I know we're talking about songs, but I'm not singing one. <clears throat> I promise I'm not singing a song, Brother Todd. (laughs) Here we find out that the sin bearer of the world is going to bear the sins of the redeemed. Scholars call this the Mount Everest of messianic prophecies. Others refer to this chapter, Isaiah 53, as the torture chamber for the rabbis. Interesting, isn't it? Do you know why they call it the torture chamber for rabbis? It's because this chapter is so obvious that it only refers to one person named Jesus, that it has literally bugged Jewish rabbis for centuries trying to make it apply to something different than what is obvious to probably everybody in the room today. Today it bugs rabbis so much that as they're reading through the Bible in the temple, They purposefully skip Isaiah 53. Many times if you're in the book of Isaiah and you go to the temple and they come to Isaiah 53, they'll just straight go to the very next chapter. Because they realize how many problems it gives to them about Jesus. One author said this, This section contains unarguable, incontributable proof that God is the author of Scripture and Jesus, the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. The details are so minute that no human could have predicted them by accident, and no impostor fulfilled them by cunning. Pascal, one of the greatest and most influential scientific minds ever, wrote this. The greatest of the proofs of Jesus Christ are the prophecies. They are also what God has Most provided for, for the event with which fulfilled them, is a miracle of God himself. The observation of Pascal is definitely true. The fact of the Messiah's extreme physical and spiritual sufferings have been plainly prophesied in Isaiah 53 and other passages. Yet the suffering servant humbly endures them as God's will for the sake of those who will be justified. Or have their sins paid for by him. So let's go through the message today. Number one. We see that it's a horrific scene. In 1912. A traveling evangelist by the name of George Bernard. Was preaching the gospel. At a revival meeting in the great state of Michigan. Not a single amen. (laughs) After the service. A group of young men taunted the preacher. They mocked him and the cross of Jesus Christ. George Bernard could not escape their contempt for the cross. It so grieved his heart that he felt moved to respond to their animosity for the cross by expressing his affection for the cross with a song. The words that he wrote form the lyrics of a song that you and I have come to love. Those are uh, These are some of the words that he penned. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. He wrote those words in part to express that Though others may hate or even mock the cross, I will cherish the cross. Others may disregard the cross, but I will love the cross. Others may run from the cross, but I will cling to that cross. Bernard's words of affection for the cross have become an anthem for the church. An anthem that has endured even as music has evolved This song has continued to be a treasure to those that treasure the cross. But I wonder, how could George Bernard describe the cross as an emblem of suffering and shame in the first verse and then go on and write these words in the third verse? In the old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. How could he have the audacity to describe the cross as beautiful? How could he describe the unimaginable suffering of Jesus as beautiful? I think we can just read Isaiah 53 and realize this is an ugly, horrific scene. Jesus, it says, was despised and rejected of men. It talks about our Savior as a man of sorrows. It tells us that he was personally acquainted with grief. Men mocked him there. People spit on him. He was stripped of his clothes. The smell of death was in the air and there was a pool of blood at the foot of the cross. The horror of the cross is seen before the cross even happened when Jesus went to the garden of Gethsemane and prayed. Thoughts of the cross made Jesus sweat great drops of blood, the Bible tells us. Friend, the scene on the hill of Calvary was anything but beautiful. It was horrific. I don't know if any of us can even begin to understand the horror that occurred there. But King David prophesied it like this in Psalm 23, or Psalm 22. He said, "But I am a worm, and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people." All they that see me laugh me to scorn, they shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint, my heart is like wax, it is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierce my hands and my feet. All of that physical horror could only be surpassed by the spiritual horror. Psalm 22, the messianic prophecy begins with this, these familiar words. Psalm 22, 1 says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not only was it horrific, it was awful painful. Isaiah uses very descriptive words in this prophecy. He says things like despised, rejected, grief, sorrow, stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, oppressed, slaughtered, cut off, death. None of these words are synonymous with beauty. Jesus suffered pain at the hands of the soldiers. Consider some of the horrible things that Jesus suffered while he was on that cross. May I ask, was it beautiful when they blindfolded him and then beat him? Was it beautiful when they mocked him in Luke chapter 22 after they hit him and said, Hey, Jesus, prophesy who hit you. Hey, hey, Jesus, who was it that hit you? And then another one would rear up and do it again and time and time again. Is there anything beautiful about that? Was it beautiful when the thugs were spitting and mocking our Savior in Matthew 27? How can we look at that and claim we love Jesus and say, this is beautiful? Was it beautiful when they plucked his beard from his face? It may have been prophesied in Isaiah 50. But was it beautiful in reality? Where's the beauty in John chapter 19, verse 1, when Pilate orders Jesus to be scourged with a cat of nine tails? Can you imagine the beating that he endured, the flesh being ripped from his body, bones and limbs being shredded as they were beaten? Where's the beauty? How can anyone recall the horror of John 19? when the soldiers planted a crown of thorns on our Savior's head and call it beautiful. How can anyone picture the scene of John 19, verse 5, when Jesus stands in front of that mob, that crowd, viewing the man that had just been beaten half to death, ribs visible, bloodied and bruised from head to toe, the crowd viewing that man in such a beaten shape and the crowd with their bloodlust still crying out, crucify him and then still call him guilty. Was it beautiful in John 19 verses 16 through 18 as they laid our Savior on the cross pulling his limbs out of joint like this passage prophesies? In uh, Psalm 22, was it beautiful as you hear the spikes being driven through his wrists and his feet? Was it beautiful to hear the painful cries of the same man who would cry out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. A death on the cross is the most horrible form of execution known to mankind in our history rederive our English word excruciating from it when a man was crucified on the cross tremendous strain was exerted on his wrists arms and shoulders usually resulting in the dislocation of shoulders and sometimes even elbow joints the arms being held up and outward held the rib cage in a fixed and inspiratory position which made it extremely difficult to exhale And totally impossible to take a complete breath. The victim would only be able to take very shallow breaths, usually in rapid succession. This explains the brevity of Christ's statements on the cross. Jesus spoke seven times on the cross, but none of them were very long. Have you ever wondered why? He said... Man behold the woman, woman behold the man, talking to John about his mother. He said two words, I thirst. He said, it is finished. He said, my God, the longest thing he said was, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Do you ever wonder why? The reason why is because he couldn't hardly catch his breath. As time passed, imagine what that would do to your muscles not getting the oxygen that they would need. Not having the blood flow because of all of the open wounds That fixed position of the body would undergo severe cramps and spasmatic contractions. Most of the time, suffocation was the ultimate cause of death on the cross. Because of the position of the body, the muscles in the chest would be contracted, forcing the dying man to push as much as he can on the nails near the feet, to raise himself up, thereby allowing him to take a breath. After a time, the victim would no longer be able to do so because he would just run out of strength. His lungs would slowly fill with fluid until he asphyxiated. Friend, the death of Jesus was a horrible affair. But also, think about this. Sure, the the crowds of people, the soldiers, enacted terrible pain on our Savior. But he also was given that pain from the sovereign hand of God. While Jesus was on the cross, a remarkable thing happened. Somehow, Jesus actually became the manifestation of sin for us. You know the verse. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus actually became sin... So that you could overcome yours. Jesus became the sin of the redeemed and he was judged by the father. We believe theologically that this is the time where Jesus would cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus was calling out to his father who had turned away from his son. I can't explain it. But somehow God poured out his wrath onto the body of his son. And Jesus suffered the undiluted, unfiltered wrath of almighty God. And look at verse number 10, please. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Our Savior breathed his last breath hanging on a cross. Hanging there, enduring the pain, the horror, the agony. Not enduring his own sins because he had none, but enduring our sins, friend. It was our transgressions. It was our iniquities. It was for our sake that it pleased God to bruise him. He wasn't crushed on the account of his own sins. He was crushed under the account of our sins. Here's a quick application for this point for all of the Christians in the room. The pain Jesus went through on the cross makes my indifference to the things of God unimaginable. How could I claim to love Jesus and then go and live a life in hypocrisy to his commands? The pain of Jesus And all the things that he went through on the cross makes your indifference to the things of God unthinkable. Comprehending his suffering should destroy all of our carelessness, should solidify our faithfulness, and bolster our pursuit of holiness. When I see his sufferings, my careless heart is disturbed and disrupted. I am weaned from my love of sin by hearing about Jesus' pain on my behalf. <clears throat> Christian, your willful, habitual sin makes a mockery of what Jesus did on the cross. Attending church services, Bible study, faithful and holy living, and prayer should become easy daily choices when I consider what Jesus has done for me. Here's a quick application for those who aren't believers. I saw a t-shirt once that showed a picture of Jesus' bloodied body on the cross. Then the teacher said something like this. If I am all right and you are all right, then why did this happen? Why would Jesus go through all of that pain? Why would Jesus suffer like he suffered if there wasn't something greatly wrong with all of us? Why would Jesus die for you if you don't have sin? The reason Jesus died was so that you and I could have, through the Holy Spirit, victory over our sins and the penalty that comes with them. You are not all right. What in the world would make George Bernard imagine the sights and the sounds of the crucifixion and then describe that scene as beautiful? What would make him think of the old rugged cross and entertain the notion that the cross could be beautiful? Beautiful. It wasn't the broken, bruised, bloodied body of Jesus that was beautiful. It wasn't the mocking crowds that were beautiful. It wasn't the soldiers enacting the pain that was beautiful. The cross isn't beautiful to the Christian because of how it appeared. The cross is beautiful to the Christian because of what it accomplished. Point number three. The beauty of the cross is seen only through what the person on the cross accomplished. No other crucifixion in history could be described as beautiful. Only the cross of Jesus. There is only one cross and one crucifixion that can be described as beautiful because there is only one cross adorned by our Savior. There is only one cross that held God's sinless, spotless, sacrificial lamb. The beauty of the cross is seen in the fact that Jesus took our place. Verse number 6 of Isaiah 53. We are compared to sheep, which is anything but a compliment, friend. Notice it says that we all have gone astray. Everyone has turned to their own way. Substitution is the major theme of Scripture. Right after Adam and Eve sinned, God sacrifices an, an animal in order to cover their nakedness, but to also be a substitute for the penalty of death. God then gave his people the law, which sadly those people continued to break continuously. As a way to avoid punishment. He granted granted to them substitutes to pay the price for their sins. When a flawless animal would die in the sinner's place, allowing the sinners to go free. The Passover lamb vividly portrays how a substitute saved people from slaughter. When the only way to avoid the avenging angel was the blood of the perfect male lamb. Applied to the doorposts. God said in Exodus 12, When I see the blood, I will pass over you. In Hebrews 10 verse 4, it says this, that we have a problem. It says that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They may substitute for a while, but they can't take them away. The only acceptable offering is a perfect offering. And so Jesus was able to pay the perfect price. For your sins and mine. Through his substitutionary sacrifice. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said these words. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's say it like this. The innocent Jesus was punished as if he was guilty. That the guilty you and me might be rewarded as if innocent. We truly deserve the penalty. We deserve the punishment. But God has poured out his wrath against our sins on his only son. Death on the cross wasn't uncommon in that day, though. The cross was not exclusive to Jesus. In fact, on the exact same day Jesus was crucified, he was crucified between two other men. Many ancient civilizations used crucifixion as a tool for the death penalty. The Persians, Assyrians, Romans, Germans, and Celts, even, amongst others, used crucifixion. Kings were known to squash rebellions with max crucifixion. After Spartacus was killed, the emperor demanded all of his captured followers to be crucified along a road leading into Rome. Some 6,000 men were crucified all at once. Their bodies were left to rot on this road for years after they were crucified. Even today, ISIS has crucified followers of Jesus. The truth is, we have no way of knowing how many tens of thousands of people have died on a cross. But in spite of the fact that thousands of other people have died on the cross, only one cross is known on every continent. Only one cross is known in every country. And in over 90% of every language spoken on the earth, they talk about that one cross. By royalty and by beggars, by intellectuals and by the illiterate, by the famous and the unknown, by believers and by atheists, only one cross forces every other religion to acknowledge its impact. What about the thousands of other crosses? No religion deals with them. What about the thousands of other men who have been crucified? No other religion has given an answer for any of them. There's only one cross that demands a response. One cross demands our attention. One cross forces every single person of every single religion to confront and acknowledge that cross's impact. Because only one cross changed the course of time and eternity. Only one cross satisfies heaven and makes hell tremble. Only one cross exalted a servant savior so that one day at the mention of his name, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord over all things in heaven, over things in the earth, and things under the earth. Only one cross led to the defeat of Satan to the extent that one day Satan himself will bow down before the crucified Christ and declare that he is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Only one cross. Only one cross secured eternal life for sinners. The power of the cross can't be contained. The reach of the cross can't be measured. The worth of the cross cannot be calculated the impact of the cross can't be contained, and the message of the cross can't be silenced. As long as there is one believer somewhere in the world, the message of the cross will be proclaimed. The reason that we declare the cross, the reason that we love the cross, the reason that we would all agree that the cross is beautiful is because is the only cross that accomplished my sins being forgiven my sin debt being paid my shame guilt and punishment being taken away only one cross provides a door to life to those who are spiritually dead in sin only one cross offers an opportunity for us to be welcomed into an everlasting covenant with the king of kings only one cross offers guilty sinners like us the joy of being forgiven. Only one cross cancels the constantly accumulating debt of my sins. That one cross was the cross of Jesus Christ. George Bernard wrote in the Old Rugged Cross, stained with blood so divine, a wondrous beauty I see. For the dear Lamb of God left a glory above to pardon. And to sanctify me. Friend. That's what makes. The cross. Beautiful. Will you please stand. Christians, you're here today. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us in person, our services are at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. every Sunday. We're located at 700 North Walnut Creek Drive in Mansfield, Texas. You can visit our website at cbcmansfield.com or follow us at Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at CBC Mansfield. Thanks again for joining us.